What a good morning so far through singing together and Sam coming up here and doing just an incredible job. And what Sam did this morning is what we're going to take a look at. We're going to go on a little journey. We're going to go back 2,000 years, and then we're going to go back another 1,500 years so that we can get a fuller sense of what the early church found valuable. What the book of Acts, what the scriptures teach us, the early church gathered around, and yet 2,000 years from then, we're still practicing these ancient things, which are a beautiful mystery of the church that we participate in together. So if you would, let's pray together and just ask the Lord to speak to us and open our hearts and minds to him this morning, and then we'll get into the scriptures together. God, I pray, Father, that you would speak this morning. God, I pray that um, anything that we're carrying in with us, any fears, anxieties, stress, anger, um, sin in our hearts, God, that we would lay that before you as we remember what you did on that cross for us. And I, God, to this morning, I pray that you would speak through your word, that you would change us, that you would continue to work in our lives to make us more like Jesus. We give you all the glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are, have been here the last couple of weeks, we've been going through Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This little section is kind of a descriptive picture of what the early church found valuable. And two weeks ago, John talked about the apostles' teaching, which was how important it is to be creatures of the Word, to value the Word of God enough to read it, to think about it, to meditate on it, to pray through it, and to make it be a part of our lives. And then last week, John talked about fellowship. Now, fellowship is how we interact as the body and walk through this life together, not on our own. And that's so valuable for us as the church. But this morning, as we look at this concept, it comes out of Acts 2.42, and it's the third part of this. And read along with me in Acts chapter 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, week one, and to the fellowship, week two to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Let's continue to read. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And I love this part. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now what we're looking at this morning is this idea of breaking of bread. Now, I do believe there is two ideas at play here. I do think that there, there is this fellowship meal, this time spent together eating and communing with one another. But what we're going to focus on this morning is what Sam just talked about, what you just participated in. And if we look at one of the Greek words, koinonia, this word means to share and to participate in, and it's where we get the word communion. Now, I'm not sure what your background is. We all come to Christ in various ways, and you're at this church at this moment, and some of you may have called what we call communion the Eucharist. You know what that word means? It's a beautiful word. It means giving thanks. Some of you may have heard it called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Meal, the Lord's Table, 
And here we call it communion. And we get that from that Greek word, and it just means that we participate together. Now, we'll get to that later, but there's the key that we as the church participate and commune with one another as we commune with the Father. And so this morning, we're going to take a quick survey of what the Bible teaches about communion. And I'm not going to cover every aspect. I'm not going to cover what certain churches and certain mainline denominations view what this meal actually is. We're going to cover just the basics here. And my prayer is that you will feel and you will experience this meal in a different way. That yes, we know those wafers taste like styrofoam. And we know that you may be hungry and it doesn't quite fill you up, but what we want to look to is something completely different. This beautiful moment that you and I need every week as we gather together to remember just what Jesus did for me. And before we do that, I want you to sit for a moment and I want you to think about your last week. Think back to last Sunday. A lot has gone on, right? Major snowstorm come in, you're trying to figure out how to get to work, you're trying to figure out how do I get the kids out of the house? How do I get to the store and buy something that can substitute for milk, eggs, and bread because the shelves are empty? And I want you to think about how you have struggled in your flesh this week. How you've struggled in your sin. Have you've, how you wrestled with your thoughts and your actions and your words. And I say this as someone who's doing the very same thing. Because here's the key. We often think that we deserve heaven. We often think we're much better than we actually are. And the truth is, no one deserved God's grace. That we were dead in our sins, and we deserved God's judgment and penalty and punishment. Yet because of his loving kindness, he draws us in, and you're here this morning. And so all that you're carrying with you, you can lay down at the foot of the cross. And so we have to carry that weight but ultimately, we, we cast off that weight because Jesus took that upon himself. And I want you to think about that as we look through just what the scriptures say about communion. So as we do that, we're going to look at how the disciples in the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted, they committed, they continually remembered this was an important aspect of the early church. And so I want to ask the question, what is breaking of bread? To do that, I want to go back to the Passover. I want us to go back to Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is this passage in the Old Testament. This is, if you remember the story, and I'll surmise it as much as I can, God created Adam, populated the earth. The earth became really bad. He destroyed the earth, saved Noah and his family. Through Noah, he would repopulate the earth, promising never to destroy the earth again. And then a few generations go by, and he has Abraham out walking in Chaldea, and he calls Abraham to himself, and Abraham follows him to a place unknown. And he says, I promise you, when you're old in age and you have no kids, and I promise you, you will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And through Abraham's own sin and own failing, God is faithful to that covenant. And then he makes another one, with Jacob, Isaac and Jacob. And generations pass on and we come to the Davidic covenant and he tells David, I will make you an everlasting eternal kingdom, but you're not the king. 
And so all of Israel is in hopes of this. And so they always look back to Moses and how Joseph brought all of, how God through Joseph brought Israel to Egypt by his divine sovereignty, by his own plan, not by accident, but on purpose. And there he would populate them and he would make a point. He's pulling Israelites out of Egypt. Do you remember the story? Have you watched? Do they still show that on Easter? The Ten Commandments, it's like eight hours long. And you remember the plagues, and there's ten of them. And each plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh is so stubborn that he won't do it because he realizes he's relinquishing power and control. And it comes to the tenth plague. Do you remember this plague? This is the worst of them all. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. And the Jewish people call this Passover, and they celebrate this even to this day. And the Passover, if you go to Exodus chapter 12, it'll be on the screen behind me, some of it. I want to read this to you because this gives us a sense of what Jesus was about to celebrate with his disciples. This is laying the foundation for what we celebrate as communion. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is all over the New Testament, or the Old Testament, and the New Testament. When you read the Old Testament, you see how all of it is pointing forward to the hope that they had in Jesus, yet they missed it. And we're going to see how Jesus shows up in the Passover meal. So Exodus chapter 12 Verse 3 says, Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Let's jump down to verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. Hold on to that. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. A few more verses, chapter or verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, and I am the Lord. Verse 13 says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Now I want you to see the picture that God is painting for the future. What the Israelites would do is they'd go take a lamb, one year old, that was perfect and spotless without blemish. And they would take this lamb and they would slaughter this lamb. Now this is just one part of the Passover meal or the Seder. They had a few different elements in here too. And I'm going to get to a couple of them in just a minute. But they would slaughter this perfect, unblemished lamb, this male lamb. And they would take the blood, and they would wipe the blood over the doorpost. And they would go in, and they would take this lamb, and they would cook it. And this was the biggest part of the meal. They would eat the flesh of the lamb together. This this, this time together would last hours. They would slaughter the lamb at twilight and cook him. And then they they would eat this for hours into the night. And on that moment, specifically, 
the angel of death came into Egypt and he passed over all the Jewish families and those in those houses that had taken that blood of the lamb that would protect them. Now, do you see how this, picks, this, this comes together? See how Israel represents you and I even to this day, that we were stuck in the bondage of sin and slavery, and without the blood of the Lamb covering our lives, that we have death. But because the blood of the Lamb, God has passed over us and put that on the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's the blood of the Lamb that purchased you and redeemed you from your sin. And so there's this, this festival they have, the week leading up to the Passover called the Passover or, or, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now what they would do is, you and I like big, thick bread, right? Not the little, we, okay, okay, let me, let me just clarify. We love emos. It is real cheese. It's a mix of cheese. It is like a cracker. And we love it. Now I love Chicago style. I mean, I love pizza, Period. But you, if you are a St. Louisan, if you are in this area, you know that Emo's is, is so good. But let's be honest, the, the crust is pretty thin, right? We like big, thi- I was at a restaurant in um, Colorado years ago for Ski IY. Remember that event? That's where you would go out to, to Colorado with a bunch of teenagers, and you'd ski for three days hoping no one broke a leg or a neck, and you learned about Jesus for a little bit. And we stopped at this restaurant called Bojo's. Bojo's Mountain Pies, and it was amazing. And the, the crust was literally this big. And you would tear off the crust after you ate the pizza, and you'd dip it in honey and eat it. We are Americans. We like things that are big. And so if you look at this Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's a reason the bread that you eat for communion. The Jewish people call it matzah. It's got no yeast in it to make the, the, the dough rise. And the reason they did that, because they had to get out of Egypt in haste. That's why the scriptures say, put your sandals on, attach your belt, get ready to move in haste because you don't have time for the bread to rise. Have you ever put yeast in bread? Christine will do this from time to time and make homemade bread, and it is so good. So bad for me, but so good to eat. And I'm seeing that bread at morning time, and I'm seeing it in the afternoon, and I just want to eat it, but it's not risen high enough for us to bake. And so we're used to that, but when we take this bread, there's a reason there was no leaven in it. And they take seven days to celebrate this, and so... They have this bread that they can just take without the leaven. They can cook it immediately and eat it. And that's a picture that we're going to get to of Jesus and his sacrifice for you and I. There's a reason it's not the sourdough you pick up at Frank's. And so they leave in haste and they take this out to the desert because God has passed over them and they're eating the flesh of the blood of the Passover lamb. And they do this for generations to remember that God has saved them from the bondage of slavery, just like he has saved you from the bondage of slavery of sin by the blood of the Lamb. Now, you and I are on this side of history, so we can look back and see this beautiful picture of how God loves us, because it's not that he passed over us, it's that he loves us enough to take care of us, to provide a way for us, to provide a way out for us. And so Jesus In Matthew chapter 26, is celebrating this very meal with his disciples. You can read about this in John chapter 13. You can read about this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all give an account of the Passover meal of Jesus with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And on a side note, 
if you read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 22 through 25, what you'll notice is they're sitting around, reclining at table, and they're taking this meal. And this isn't on the screen behind me, but I found it so unique and interesting that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, the disciples start shouting out, is it me, Lord? Don't miss it. Is, is it me, Lord? But the one who betrayed Jesus, is it I, Rabbi? Is it I, teacher? You see, there's never an instance in Scripture of Judas ever calling Jesus Lord. Now, isn't that unique? Why do I bring that up? Because you'll hear often in this world that Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus was even a great man. But as C.S. Lewis reminds us, he was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. He wasn't just a great teacher. And that's why people can claim to follow Jesus and say he is a great teacher, but they never have submitted their lives to him as Lord. And you and I constantly have to check our hearts and lay them at the altar of the cross and say, Lord, may you be the Lord of all and not just a great teacher. What a unique piece in the scriptures. And so Jesus, we pick it up from right there. He's eating the Passover. This Passover with his disciples, this meal, and they're going through all the parts. And let's pick it up in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he always did this. And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, or the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you, for many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, God had a plan to create a whole new covenant that built on all of the ones in the past that Jesus came to fulfill. And the prophet Jeremiah in 31 says, I will write a new covenant on the hearts of my people. And Jesus is instituting what Jeremiah had prophesied centuries before. And he's saying, there is a new covenant, and when you drink of this, you are participating in a new world. You're participating in a new kingdom. And so he's celebrating this. Now, the unique thing about this dinner that he's celebrating with the disciples is there are four cups. If you will look up how Jewish people celebrate the Passover, and some of you may have done a Seder meal, and I would encourage you to look into that and do that with your family. Maybe do that with extended family or friends and walk through because they all have meanings. And I'm not going to cover all that, but there are four cups traditionally in this meal. And it comes out of Exodus 6. In Exodus 6, in verses 6 and 7, says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. The first cup that they would celebrate in this meal is called the cup of sanctification. What is the cup of sanctification? It simply means that God is the one who will bring them out. He is the one who's at work doing the work for his people. And so they would take this cup first, and then they would move to the second cup, 
And this is called the cup of deliverance. And we pick up again in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Halfway through, he says, And I will deliver you from slavery from them. And so we have the second cup that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples, the cup of deliverance. And then we come to the third cup. And many scholars believe that this is the cup when Jesus says, Drink of this, it is my body, it is a new covenant. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the cup of blessing. And this is called the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. And again in Exodus 6, he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Jesus is taking this cup of redemption, knowing that this cup that they're about to share together, that God is about to pour out this cup of wrath upon him for the sins of the world, and he's going to absorb them. And he's saying, this is a sign to you. And little did they know exactly what that meant. But you and I can see the beauty of Jesus celebrating this Passover meal as they're taking that cup of redemption together. They're drinking in God's love, God's forgiveness, God's redemption for them. And then the fourth cup is called the cup of praise. In Exodus 6, 7, he says, I will take you to be my people. And so they would take the fourth cup after dinner, and they would celebrate all that God had done for them. What a beautiful picture of the Passover that often we miss. And this was the meal Jesus was celebrating with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, arrest, and ultimate crucifixion. And he takes that cup of redemption, and he drinks it, and he says, I'm making a new covenant with you. And I want to move on to the importance of communion for the Christ follower. Because it's one thing to talk about pictures, it's one thing to think in ideas, but what does this actually mean for you and I as we come here week after week and we participate in this meal together? What does it actually mean for you and I? What should we walk away with? And I, again, I love that our, our people come up here every week and they share with you about how, what Christ means to them and ultimately how God loves us through taking of this meal together. The first thing is Christ's death. The first thing that we learn from communion is it remembers, it resembles Christ's death. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we symbolize the death of Christ because our actions give a picture of his death for us. When the bread is broken, it symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. And when the cup is poured out, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood for us. This is why participating, sharing, communing together in the Lord's Supper is also a kind of proclamation. And here's what 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you're doing that, you're saying, Jesus died for my sin, and I'm remembering this because he's promised to come back and redeem us fully, finally, once and for all. So the first thing it does is it reminds us of Christ's death. The second thing is our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. Now you're like, what does that mean? Jesus commanded his disciples, he says, take, eat, this is my body. As we individually reach out and take the cup for ourselves, each one of us is by that action proclaiming, I am taking the benefit of Christ's death to myself. Right? Like, he stepped in your place. And so when you take that cup, you are saying, I'm taking the benefit of all that Christ did for me. 
When we do this, we give a symbol of the fact that we participate in a share in the benefits earned for us by the death of Jesus. We participate when we remember. The third thing is spiritual nourishment. We can all agree that little shot of juice and that little bitty wafer doesn't do much. Although if you haven't had much to drink or eat in the morning, as soon as you take that juice, it kind of wakes up the mouth a little bit, right? But there's a spiritual nourishment that's a part of this that often we overlook, and, and may we not overlook this as we take this week in and week out. Just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, so the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper give nourishment to us. But they also picture the fact that there is spiritual nourishment and refreshment that Christ is giving to our souls. The ceremony that Jesus instituted is in its very nature designed to teach us this. Jesus said in John 6, verses 53 through 57, Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he, eats, so he who eats me will live because of me. There is something going on when we participate in the Lord's Supper together. Jesus obviously is not speaking of the literal eating of his flesh and blood because he called himself a door, and he's not a door. He called himself a vine, and he's not a vine. He's saying, listen, there's a picture at play here. But the spiritual nourishment is so necessary for our souls. It's symbolized and experienced in, in our participation in this supper together. The fourth thing, the unity of believers. How often do you get together with other people to remember someone by eating food that symbolizes their flesh? There's a unifying thing within the church when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Oftentimes we think of it as just an individual thing, but it's not only individual, it's also for the community of believers. When Christians participate in the Lord's Supper together, they also give a clear sign of their unity with one another. Look around you. Look at the people who believe in the same Jesus that you believe in. You are not walking in this world alone, but you are participating together with the body of Christ. His bride is battered and bruised and abused and worried and anxious and troubled bride that so often wants to pull away, and yet Jesus promises that he's coming back for us. We participate in this together. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The fifth thing is Christ affirms his love for me. Say that in your mind. Christ affirms his love for me. The fact that I am able to participate in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus invites me to come, is a vivid reminder and a visual reassurance that Jesus Christ does love me, individually and personally. Where else will you find a love that you are fully known in all that you are and you are fully loved? 
The only place you find that love. Let me say that clearly. The only place you will find that love is in Jesus. He is the only one, and you may have a good spouse, and they may love you, but I guarantee you they do not know every single thing about you for all of your life. Amen, and thank you, Lord. (laughs) And Lord, help me be transparent with my spouse. And help me to love my spouse when they're transparent with me. As Jesus loves me, you will not find this outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to take the Lord's Supper, we find reassurance again and again of Christ's personal love for me. His personal love for you. The sixth thing, I only got two more. Christ affirms that all the blessings of salvation are reserved for me, are reserved for you. All the blessings of our salvation are reserved for you individually and collectively. When I come at Christ's invitation to the Lord's Supper, he is the one that invites us to it. It's his supper, and he invites us to it. And so when we are invited at his invitation, The fact that he invited me into his presence reassures me that he has abundant blessings for me. John 10.10 is a famous verse. That the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and give it abundantly. And we can twist that and say, that means I should have the acreage with the house and the cars and the 401k. Or we can see what Jesus was talking about with a band of believers that had nothing and said, the spiritual life that I give you is the one to come. It's the one to come. In this supper, we are actually eating and drinking at a foretaste of the great banquet table of the king. I'm going to get to this in just a minute. I come to his table as a member of his family, his eternal family. When the Lord welcomes me to this table, he assures me that he will welcome me to all the other blessings of earth and heaven as well. It's called the Great Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And we get to be invited. And the last thing is this. I affirm my faith in Christ. When you take that meal together, you're affirming that I do believe this. It doesn't mean without doubts, because we read in Matthew 28 and verse 16, right before the Great Commission, that they worshiped him and some doubted. This is those who have walked with Jesus, seen him resurrected, touched him with their own hands, ate with him, and yet as they worshiped him, some doubted. This is not about doubt. This is about us knowing that God is faithful in his promises. And when you take that meal, you can be reminded of your faith in him, in his work. As we take this bread and cup for ourselves, our actions are proclaiming this. I need you and trust you. May this be our prayer this week. I need you and trust you, Lord Jesus, to forgive my sin. Because sometimes we don't believe that, do we? Sometimes you believe you can outsend the grace of God. Sometimes you walk in here thinking you don't have it together. And you have to get it together first. Or you're going to walk out of here and thinking, I'm just not good enough. The blood of Christ isn't enough. And can I humbly and gently encourage you, stop believing in the lies. 
believe in the truth of a powerful Savior who's done enough to save you. And when we take this, we remember this, and we say this prayer, I need you and trust you, Lord Jesus, to forgive my sin and give life and health to my soul. For only by your broken body and shed blood can I be saved. As we partake in the breaking of the bread, when, when we eat it, and we pour out the cup, when we drink from it, we proclaim again and again that my sins were a part of the cause of Jesus' suffering and death. And in this way, sorrow, joy, thanksgiving, and deep love for Jesus are richly intermingled in the beauty of this meal together. I want to I end with this. It's not on the screen. It's time to stop taking notes. It's time to listen to the Lord this morning. In Luke chapter 14, there's this beautiful picture. I'm going to paraphrase, and you can follow up on this in your own Bibles later. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee, and he's having a meal with them. And Jesus, one not known for no controversy, is with these Pharisees, these religious leaders who hold the keys to the kingdom. This is how you're supposed to love God. And of course, Jesus is disrupting this, and he's at this meal with these leaders. And this is the thing that I love about Jesus. Yes, he would be with tax collectors and sinners and drunkards, but he knew the religious people still needed him. And he spent time with them as well. And he's at this table and he's eating with them and he sees this man who has what the Bible calls dropsy. Um, he's got this thing wrong with him. And of course, on the Sabbath, you can't heal because that's considered work. Although we sure can justify things, can't we? Well, if my ox falls into a hole, surely I can get him out. That's not work. But if a man is needing healing and the grace of God into his life, that's considered a work. And so Jesus just heals him. And then he goes on because they couldn't quite comprehend this. They were not happy about this. In Luke chapter 14, he talks about this parable of the wedding feast because he's at this influential religious leader's home. And he says, now, I now he told a parable to those who were invited. Those who were invited. That means some were not invited. And those who invited probably had a special place at the table with this man. And so Jesus says, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts in himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But here's, Jesus doesn't stop here. He's confronting the leaders with how they're judgmental and how they hold religion to themselves. He goes on and he tells this parable of the great banquet. And it's just a story. And he said also to the man who had invited him, like he is, like I look at you and I don't know exactly what's going on in your life. And if the Spirit is convicting you of something, it's not because I know, it's because the Spirit knows. And he's powerful enough to know he can take one scripture and he can convict many people through that one scripture through his Holy Spirit. 
But Jesus knows. He knows this man's heart, and he looks at him. And he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Verse 15 says, this, this, one of these leaders speaks up and says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, Yeah, but. Says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Sound familiar? The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded we have done, and still there is room. And, he, and the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Can this hit home for us this morning? When we take the Lord's Supper, you are the poor. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are the crippled. When you take the Lord's Supper, you are blind and you are lame. And by God's grace, he has brought you in. And you have a spot at his table. And you sit there this morning. And you will sit there in eternity. This is a picture Jesus is, is sharing with in Revelation 19.9. talks about the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And when Jesus returns, he promises, I will not drink of this until I drink of it with you in the kingdom to come. May we never forget that we were the ones that were blind and lame and crippled and didn't, couldn't bring ourselves to the table. And yet he compels us to come in and he invites us and he brings us to the table, not by our works, not by our personalities. And I say this is because we need to remember that that was us. And I also say that because those are the people that are spiritually lame, spiritually blind spiritually weak, that we are commissioned to go and compel to come sit at the table of the Lamb and to participate in this beautiful meal together. So may we never forget when we break bread together all that we're participating in. Great love of the Father for you and I. We renew our love with him every week. And we come to his table. Would you pray with me? God, you are almighty. 
and you are everlasting God. Father, we thank you for feeding us with spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. God, thank you for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son. God, that we are heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out to do the work that you have given us to do, to love you, to serve you, as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit. God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand?